Hey everyone, thanks for being here today at Solace Church as we start this series called Believable. I'm going to be talking today about the historical Jesus. We're going to start a conversation today and it'll conclude next week as we're leading up to Easter. I want to, I want to start this morning as we begin this Believable series uh, just, just getting a sense for, for us in the room. You walked in the room today and, and you, you came with a certain disposition towards Christianity or towards belief. And, and the, the title of this series is called Believable. And I don't know if you can see it very well, but beside the word believable is the word un, and it's either fading in or out depending on how you look at the picture. And I get that as I talk over the next couple of weeks about the historicity of Jesus and the reliability of the Bible, that some of you are firmly in the camp of believable. You got it. It's settled in your heart. It's settled in your mind. You need no more proof. You need no more explanation. It's a done thing. It's a done deal in your mind. It's a settled fact. And so you're going to hear this and you're going to go, okay, that's great. Yeah, I'm, I'm good with that. Thanks for taking you know, a couple of weeks to do that. That's great. But for me, you're already, you know, for you, you're already there. Some of you, some of you in the room, and maybe you're watching online as well at solacechurch.com, some of you would be in a position where maybe, maybe this un is fading a bit. Maybe you've been in the believable camp in terms of your, your faith in Christianity or faith in Jesus, but maybe because of life circumstances, maybe you're a teenager or a college student or a young adult and you heard something online or from your teacher or professor and maybe you began to wonder, have I been duped all these years? I mean, has that guy on stage been lying to me the whole time and all this stuff is not true? Some of you may be fading out of believable into unbelievable. And then some of you in the room, some of us in the room, maybe we would be in a position where we've been firmly in the unbelievable camp. There's no way I believe that. But for some reason in this season, you're way more interested, way more intrigued with the idea of Christianity. Maybe you're more intrigued with the person of Jesus than you've ever been in your life. Maybe that un is fading for you, and maybe you're stepping closer into believable. So wherever you are on the journey, I want to help either affirm what you already believe to be true or work through some of the challenges you may be facing. You know, the claims of Christianity are, in some sense, unbelievable. Think about what the claims of Christianity are. That God, our creator, came to this small little speck of dust in the vastness of a grand universe, and he came to walk with us and teach us and talk with us. Not only that, he chose to be wrapped in flesh, we call that the incarnation, to clothe himself with humanity, and then spend some time with us, and then offer his life on a cross, and then be buried in a tomb, and then three days later rise again. I mean, that's pretty incredible things to say say about God. So, If you're here today, and if you've ever questioned or struggled with belief in the tenets of the faith or the doctrine of Christianity, man, I get it. Uh, What we're claiming to be true is significant. It is, in some sense, unbelievable, or, if it's true, incredible. So if you're here today and you're struggling, if the claims of Christianity seem too much for you, man, I just want you to know that we're sympathetic to that. We don't dismiss your difficulties and your doubts. We don't make light of them. And we don't, we don't just simply say, you know, you, 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 you don't have any idea what you're talking about. Rather, man, we get it. Actually, the claims of Christianity are so significant that a former atheist who became a theist and then a Christian would write this about Christianity. His name is C.S. Lewis, and he would say this. 
that Christianity, if if false, is of no importance. And if true, of infinite importance, the only thing it cannot be is moderately important. That's exactly right. Either Christianity is life-changing, it is earth-shattering information, or it is totally false and fabricated, and we all wasted our time here today. If Christianity is not true, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, Paul said, then we are of all men most miserable. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, don't show up on Easter. As a matter of fact, don't show up again to Solace Church. Go play golf, sleep in, mow the yard, Go to work, do something else, just not this, if it's not true. If it is true, if it is true, then you have to come to terms with the gravity of it. So, I recognize the significance of those statements. So, I want to do this over the next next couple of weeks. I want to give you one talk, or what we call a message, but it's going to last two weeks. I'm not going to stay here on this stage for two weeks, But the message content is going to take two weeks to deliver. So today, all you're going to get is the introduction. Actually, we're not going to look at a single verse of Scripture. And this part today is very simply the introduction to the message or the rest of the talk that I'm going to give you next week. Some of you are going to be very disappointed. I get it already. This is round two for me. You're going to leave disappointed. You're going to leave thinking, he didn't resolve anything fully in my life. I'm okay with that because it's going to take two weeks to resolve some of the issues that some of us face. What I want to do today, more than anything else, is to answer some objections. I'm going to give you some of the best objections I've heard from atheists or agnostics or those who would just say, uh, you know, maybe Christianity, maybe not, I don't know for sure. I'm going to give you their objections and then deal with those objections. And then next week, I'm going to put the burden of proof on us, on the church, to explain why belief in Jesus is reasonable and rational. This week, we're going to deal with the objections. Next week, the onus is on us. All right, so I ran across an article in my research about the historical Jesus and the whole claims of Christianity. And I was, I was, I was struck by one article that was posted a couple of years ago. This article is a microcosm of a macro issue. In other words, this is what's written by many different people uh, once a year, twice a year, three times a year. It, 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 it uh, presents itself. This article was written by a man named Raphael, either Laytaster or Lataster. I'm not sure, so I'm just going to call him Raphael. No disrespect, I'm just going to call him Raphael for the sake of our conversation today. It was written December 18th, 2014, so several years ago. This, says, this, is, from, uh, this is an article that says, Did historical Jesus really exist? And then the subtitle is, The evidence just doesn't add up. Uh, Then he goes on to say, there are clearly good reasons to doubt Jesus' historical existence. Now, Raphael is cited here as a lecturer in religious studies at the University of Sydney. He is the author of the book, There Was No Jesus, There Is No God. I'm going to read you the first paragraph of what he writes in this article. Did a man called Jesus of Nazareth walk the earth? Discussions over whether the figure known as the historical Jesus actually existed primarily reflect disagreements among atheists. Believers who uphold the implausible or more easily dismissed Christ of faith, the divine Jesus who walked on water, ought not get involved. 
Raphael starts the article by saying, if you believe that Jesus actually rose from the dead and is God incarnate, wrapped in flesh, then you can't participate in the conversation about whether he's a historical figure. That's what he just told you. Now, Raphael ignores the two billion or so Christians in the world who actually believe that Jesus was God and that he actually rose from the dead. So he dismisses uh, about a third, almost a third, of the entire population on the planet. And he says you can't participate in the conversation. Why? Because you're ignorant and misled and uninformed and irrational and nonsensical. You don't get to participate. Now, this is offensive in a lot of different ways because some of those brilliant men on the planet, brilliant people on the planet, are Christians who firmly believe in the deity of Christ and the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. They work in all kinds of fields all throughout the scientific community. They're historians and researchers and scientists and doctors and on and on the list goes. Now, I'm not going to give the article any more credit, quite honestly, because the rest of the article is, is very poorly written, in my opinion. It is not scholarly at all, and it's a hack job on the arguments for Christianity. But the reason why I present it to you today is because this article made it into the post-everything section of the Washington Post. And this article was picked up by Richard Dawkins, a very popular atheistic scientist, a human naturalist uh, uh, who believes in human naturalism um, in, in, in the world today. Richard Dawkins is, is a big time player in the world of atheism. He posted on his website as well this article. Now, very interesting. I did some research and there was actually a reply to this article from another man. His name is John Dixon. He posts and writes an article in the ABC Religion and Ethics section. His article is posted December 24th, 2014. I want to read you just the beginning because this is interesting. He says this. You can almost set your clock by it. Another article appears arguing Jesus never lived. So Christmas must be upon us. This time, however, I was particularly interested not because Raphael's piece in the conversation, uh, which is with the original post, had anything new to say, <clears throat> but because it was written by a young man who just three years ago said in my Sydney University class on historical Jesus to written gospels. This was his teacher. John Dixon spends the rest of the article absolutely destroying the very weak arguments presented in Raphael's post and paper. You're welcome to go research it. If you want these articles, I will give them to you. Now, what you need to know today is that Raphael represents one-tenth at best, one-tenth of one percent of scholars who suggest that Jesus never actually lived on the planet at all. It's called mythicism, the idea that it's a myth, that we, the Christians just came up with a myth to make ourselves feel better. It's the very minority opinion among scholars in our world today. Even scholars who are atheist or agnostic, historians who know anything about first century uh, life and times, they affirm the reality that Jesus actually existed in space and time on planet Earth. And they would actually give credibility. The two historical events in the life of Jesus that almost everyone agrees to is his baptism by John the Baptist and his death on the cross at the hands of, of Pontius Pilate. Jesus historically existed. The, the, the scholarly argument is almost non-existent, uh, uh, or, or almost non-existent in terms of his non-existence. Now, 
There are other arguments, though, that are made that I think are interesting that I've heard along the way as a pastor and as a Christian. Maybe you've heard them as well. I want to just spend the next few minutes talking about those arguments and helping us understand why Christianity uh, stands very firmly against or withstands these arguments as they are made. So let me just give you a couple this morning. For instance, this is one I've heard a bunch along the way. Christianity, the idea that Jesus died for our sins and rose again, Christianity, this whole gospel thing, it may work for you, but it doesn't work for me. Another way that it's stated is Christianity may be true for you, but it's not true for me. I've heard this argument before. It's, it's the idea of moral relativism or moral, uh, 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 not moral relativism, but subjective relativism or subjective uh, moral relativism. Um, this idea that, that Christianity, you know, world religions, it's all just kind of, we just kind of figure it out as we go. Whatever you believe is fine, whatever I believe is fine, you know, all roads kind of lead to God anyway. And so long as you're sincere and giving a good effort, congratulations. Jesus may work for you, may be a great crutch for you, but I don't need him. I need, I'll just go somewhere else, right? Well, this argument misunderstands the basic claim of Christianity. Actually, this argument doesn't understand the difference between, you can write this down, the difference between subjective and objective. There's a difference between subjective claims and objective claims. Oftentimes, in conversations about Christianity, people believe Christians are making subjective statements about Jesus. When in reality, we're making objective statements. Now, let me explain the difference if we're not tracking together. There's a difference between subjective claim and objective claim, and here's the difference. An objective claim would be this. The pastor of Solace Church is Matt Blair. That is an objective claim. That is to say, there is an object at the center of conversation, and your opinion cannot change whether or not I am the, uh, that Matt Blair is the pastor of Solace Church. It's objective in its nature. Now, it may be true or it may be false. It can be verified or falsified, but it has nothing to do with your opinion. Here's a subjective claim. Matt Blair is the best pastor on the planet. Thank you. That is a subjective claim. You're the focus of the, of the attention and the conversation. You are, you are the subject. You are making an opinion statement that cannot be verified or falsified to you. It is just simply what you believe to be true. Now, I know it's true, but that's not the point. The point is, is that the objective claim is that Matt Blair is the pastor. We can verify or falsify but we can't verify or falsify whether I'm the best pastor. That's your opinion that you hold. When we make arguments about the historicity of Jesus, that is that he actually existed, he actually died, and he actually rose again, those are objective claims, not subjective claims. In other words, it doesn't matter what your opinion is about the historicity of Jesus because it's not subjective in nature. It is objective. We are stating as fact that Jesus actually lived, that he actually died, and he actually rose again. And those claims are verifiable, verifiable or falsifiable. We can have a conversation about truth claims here. Whether you like Jesus or not, or want to accept him as Savior, is a complete opinion that you're going to have to wrestle with. I'm not talking about that with you. So for someone to say, well, Christianity may work for you, but it doesn't for me, misunderstands the nature of Christianity at the very beginning. C.S. Lewis says it right. Says it right. It's either true or it's false. And it's significant depending on the truth claim or the false claim of Christianity. 
So, um, I know that's not very popular in 21st century thought. But we live in a world today where objective truth is shunned or, uh, or disregarded. We don't like to state that things are objectively right or objectively wrong or objectively true or objectively false. Actually... Uh, I actually wrote a paper about this not too long ago, an article about this. It's on Oklahoma Apologetics website, oklahomaapologetics.com. And it speaks about the world in which we live. And atheists frame this up in different ways along the way. But, uh, but this idea that we can know who God is and we can know him through Jesus is actually shunned by atheists and agnostics often. One of the ways they shun this argument is by saying, you know what, you Christians, you're atheistic about every other God that's ever been invented on planet Earth in human history. By the way, there's about 3,000 of those made-up gods that people have come up with throughout human history. And it's true. I don't believe in any of those other 3,000 gods. I'm an atheist about all those other gods. That's absolutely true. I don't believe in the mythical gods of Greece or Rome. I don't believe in any other of those gods that have been invented along the way. They're right. What they say to Christians, though, is you're atheistic about all the other 2,999 gods. Why don't you just come one more step with us and become atheistic about the one God you say is true? And here's what I say to that. I'm not going to do it. Here's why. It's not because I'm stubborn. It's because your argument is flawed. Here's why your argument is flawed. Because you're suggesting that there is no correct answer to the question of if there is a God or not. In other words, you're saying there is there's is no God whatsoever and so we abandon entire beliefs about God. If that were true, then, the, then, then, then this breaks down in another objective realm. Let me explain. Atheists are saying 2,999 gods are not true, therefore your God is not true, therefore you should become an atheist. Well, if that's the case then the same logic would apply in mathematics. And let me explain. It is true that 2 plus 2 does not equal 5, 6, 7, 8, 9. Therefore, because 2 plus 2 does not equal 5, 6, 7, or 8, or 9, there must not be a correct answer to 2 plus 2. No. There is a correct answer to 2 plus 2. But it's not 5, 6, 7, 8, or 9. It's 4. There is a correct answer to the question, what is 2 plus 2? It's 4. It's, a, it's an objective truth whether you like it or not. You may not like math. You may hate mathematics. You may wish you were never in another mathematics class in your life, students. But it does not, it does not refute the fact that there is an answer to 2 plus 2. I'm not giving up on mathematics because it's been proven wrong that, there wasn't the, uh, that 2 plus 2 wasn't 5, 6, 7, or 8, or 9. Actually, it's quite affirming to know that there is an answer to what is 2 plus 2. That's very affirming in my mind. Good, there's an actual answer. And it's true every single time. I'm not suggesting that all those other gods are, gods are not false. They are. But I'm not willing to concede that there is no God and not, he did not reveal himself in the person of Jesus. That is an objective claim and we believe it's verifiable and true. Okay. So, Christianity is objective in its claims. Secondly, Secondly, I've heard this. Matter of fact, I was on Facebook having a wonderful discussion. Because that's what you do on Facebook, right? You just have very respectful dialogue on Facebook. It never gets out of hand at all. It's always, always just impersonal. We're just talking about ideas. 
I was having one of those kinds of conversations on Facebook, and this is what an individual said as I made some truth claims about the person of Jesus. And he said this, well, that's fine. You have your faith, and you feel like, and you have this experience. That's great. But if you're going to convince me, he says, extraordinary claims demand extraordinary evidence. And I would concede the point. The claims of Christianity are extraordinary. I get it. His point is, is though, that if that's the case, then you have to have extraordinary evidence to back up extraordinary claims, or I'm not going to buy into it. And here's my argument against that. Extraordinary claims can be true with no evidence at all. Something can be absolutely true. It can absolutely exist and happen, and there can be no evidence for that whatsoever. Um, This argument is flawed on its premise. The evidence for something doesn't necessarily mean it does or does not exist. It's a good way for us to judge and for us to wrestle with and come to conclusions. But something can be true and us not know it. We're limited in our information and we're limited in our perspective as we've talked about in the past. Therefore, there could be scenarios that exist that we just simply aren't privy to because we're lacking evidence for that, right? So this is flawed in its premise. However, I'll grant them this territory. If you're going to convince me that Jesus actually rose from the dead, that he was God in the flesh, I need some real hard evidence for that. And I will say this. I appreciate that. There are some people who who easily believe, and that's fine. There are some people who come to faith through this incredible experience. They're sitting in some church setting, or they're driving down the road, and they look up and see the stars or the sun, and they have an emotional experience, or there's a a stirring on the inside, and they're moved by that experience, and they come to faith more through experience or emotion than they do through intellect. I'm okay with that. If you came to faith because some pastor preached a message, and you got all slobbered up on your face, and you cried your eyes out, and you wept your eyes out on an altar, and that was your experience and that's why you're a Christian, that's perfectly fine. Uh, it, it can be true and that be your experience uh, along the way. Jesus is absolutely still God, however your road to him might be, right? So th- I'm not denying that. But for those of you who need some evidence, here's what I would say. You can write this down. As a matter of fact, over the next week, I- I'm going to help, uh, uh, help you understand that this is true. Evidence for an historical Jesus is actually extraordinary, Some people believe that Christianity is jumping off into the blind abyss, hoping that there is a God and hoping that Jesus actually existed. That's not Christianity. I don't want to be a part of that Christianity. I'm not interested in just betting the farm, if you will, on some blind leap. That's not what Christianity is. Christianity is evidence-based. It's actually rooted in history. There is extraordinary evidence for the historical Jesus, and we'll give you that along the way. This is just the introduction. Actually, if you measure the historicity of Jesus and the reliability of the New Testament, if you measure those with the same standards you use to measure other ancient persons in history and other ancient texts and books like the the New Testament... The New Testament and the history of Jesus stands, in my opinion, above every other attested to event in ancient history. It is the most, in my opinion, the most attested uh, person Jesus is, the most attested person in ancient history. There's more written about him than probably anybody else in ancient history. I think the evidence is overwhelming for his actual existence and ultimately for his death, burial, and resurrection. I want to concede one point. Because you and I need to be honest about the whole conversation about Christianity. I get 
that there are some claims inside of Christianity that are much harder to falsify or verify. I totally get it. The virgin birth, I cannot verify that. There's no way I can verify whether or not Jesus was actually born of a virgin. I get it. There's no way that I actually can verify or falsify that Jesus was actually divine uh, in, in nature. Uh, there's no test or DNA scrub that I can come up with that would verify his, 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 his genetic makeup. I can't do that. We are limited in some sense in, in some of the claims of Christianity. But the fact that he lived, the fact that he died, and the fact that he rose again, we can verify those claims, I think, and we can attest to those very, very well. We'll give you more about that next week. I'm sure you're on the edge of your seat. Last for today. Well, what you say is extraordinary evidence, those things you call the gospel, even the whole New Testament for that matter, those accounts of Jesus are unreliable. Now, think about this for a moment. The first two claims are a little less personal. Uh, it's you can believe what you want, and I'll believe what I, will, I want, and hey man, if you're going to convince me, we've got to have a whole lot more evidence, but then it gets way more personal. Oh no, the Bible you read, the thing you pick up, you have no idea how duped you really are. Do you know that those, those, those uh, gospel accounts were written way after the time of Jesus? Do you know that? Do you know they were written way after his life? 50 plus years, maybe even more, maybe 100 plus years. They're way, way late in the process. And by the way, they've been changed a ton over time. They've been added to, uh, they've been changed. There were people who got their hands on those documents and, 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 and wrote down and changed all kinds of stuff along the way. Not only that, but do you know the whole story of Jesus was manufactured in the first place? Don't you know that Jesus started out as this poor peasant carpenter in the corner of Galilee, in the corner of the Roman Empire, and, and all he was was this guy who taught some cool stuff, and he got a few people around him. But his disciples were so impressed with him that they wanted to come up and make up the story that he was divine. Don't you know that that's the way that evolved in the first place? Don't you know that Jesus himself never thought that he was God, but all, over time, this whole story evolved? And so when you read the first account uh, of, of the Gospels when, in Mark, you see a Jesus that's very different than the last uh, Gospel, which is John. He morphs along the way into a whole different person by the time John writes his Gospel. I mean, you're duped. Right? This is the claim. This is the claim about your Jesus, my Jesus. This is the claim about the Bible that we read. This is popular today. And let me just say one word of caution to the church before I give you uh, something in closing. Let me say this. If the church does not understand that this is the fight that we're up against, we're going we're to become irrelevant in the 21st century. I think the church got stuck fighting the wars of the 60s and 70s when the whole hippie movement and free love and free other kinds of stuff happened, you know. I think we got stuck there, and we said, we said to people, we said, no, the Bible says you shouldn't do it, don't do it. Well, people were rebelling in that period of time. They believed in God, and they may have even believed in the Bible, and they may have been going to church, but they were rebelling against God. They were rebelling against authority. Hear me, it no longer applies to say, well, the Bible says you shouldn't do it. They say, I don't even believe your Bible. We're going to have to engage people where they are in the 21st century, and this is what they're saying about your Jesus and mine. So I want to show you a very quick video in conclusion today. This video is from, and it's an excerpt from a conversation. So it's, it's a video uh, from um, J. Warner Wallace. If you haven't researched J. Warner Wallace, J. Warner Wallace is the founder of Cold Case Christianity. He is a former, uh, I think he lived in Los Angeles, a former California cold case detective. He spent uh, over a half a, uh, a uh, uh, he spent about 25 years or so, maybe 30 years, in cold case detective work. 
And he was an atheist, and he rejected the claims of Christianity. And he said, and you'll see in just a minute, he said about your Bible, my Bible, that's bogus. I don't believe it. But he began to research it. Now, cold case detective work is work that has circumstantial evidence, oftentimes not direct evidence. In other words, he doesn't have a video of the guy committing the crime. He's having to build the case in another way. And that's what's amazing about uh, J. Warner Wallace is because his kind of detective work helped him investigate the claims of Christianity because there was no video or was no videographer filming Jesus' death and resurrection. We didn't have a GoPro handy in the 21st century to film him coming out of the grave. One of the arguments, by the way, against Jesus and his deity is why would God send Jesus when we had all this scientific advancement and technology where we could have recorded it all now? Well, here's what I would say to that. You're arguing and whining about the timing. Just because you don't like the timing doesn't mean it's not real. So J. Warner Wallace is coming to terms with this. And so he's an atheist who became a Christian. And this is an excerpt of one of the things that convinced him of the reliability of the accounts of the gospel. We're going to hear way more next week. Watch this, watch this short video. What are some of the ways in which you applied those skills to the text of the Gospels? A couple of things I suspected that I used to always throw up my Christian friends, and they were just speechless when you'd kind of offer these objections. And the first one was, okay, fine, you've got a document. Great, you, you trust this Bible. Uh, why do you trust this Bible? Uh, you think it's written by eyewitnesses? Okay, every document in this Bible is incredibly late. You don't have an entire, complete New Testament until the fourth century. All your manuscript evidence is late. I used to say that all the time. So you can't trust its eyewitnesses because if, you, if you're an eyewitness, you were actually present to see it. But if you're waiting 100 years and writing this text, well, then there's no one alive to tell you, oh, yeah, I was there. It didn't, it didn't happen that way. It's easy to tell a lie if no one is around who knows, knows better. Would you agree? So if it's a late document, I'm out. And that was the first thing I had, the first bridge I had to cross is do I really think these are early enough to contain eyewitness accounts? And so you that, used Luke, who I quoted earlier, yeah. as sort of I loved of it, a, by the way, when you quoted Luke. That's a great passage, I think. Yeah, because it sets up the whole investigative it does. aspect of it. But you can use that. You can use Luke and Acts to create a, help create a timeline. Because as you say, the closer to the event the eyewitness accounts are, the more credible because... Yes, know, at least they passed the first test yeah. I would offer, which is, were they really there? Yes. You can't be the killer if you weren't really there. You can't be a witness if you weren't really there. Yeah. So, so that how was the does issue Luke and, and Acts that he wrote help set that timeline? Well, okay, so you know that Luke wrote the two books, the book of Acts and the gospel of Luke. And he wrote Luke first. He knows he t says this in the gospel of, uh, of Luke and then in the book of Acts. So we know which one came first. But in the book of Acts, I noticed that there were several things missing from the scene that should be in the book if it happened in the first century. One of them was the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD. It's not in the book of Acts. Also, the siege that took place for two or three years before they destroyed the temple in, in, in uh, Jerusalem is also missing from the book of Acts. And, this and that, was, these were cataclysmic oh, yeah. events. I mean, far worse than the, tw uh, the twin uh, uh, trade towers, far worse. Because you had a siege in which people were starved out. If they tried to, ex to leave, Rome, uh, leave Jerusalem, rather, they were executed by the Romans on the way out. They were crucified on the roads. Any Jew who tried to leave Jerusalem. Not only that, they were starved, no food supplies. Josephus, the Jewish historian, says when the Romans finally got inside the walls of Jerusalem, they found that the people were eating each other to stay alive. That's how bad it was, and there's no mention of it anywhere in Luke's gospel, much of which is centered in Jerusalem. Or the book of Acts. I'm sorry, in the book of Acts, yeah. 
And so that bothered me. I thought, that's interesting. That's missing, right? Why would that be missing? Also, the death of Paul, the death of Peter, and the death of James, the brother of Jesus, the three most important people in the book of Acts, Luke never mentions it. But he mentions the death of Stephen, and he mentions the death of James, the brother of John. That happened in 44, but he leaves out the deaths that happened in 61, 64, and 67, and the siege in 68, and the temple destruction in 70. And Paul is still alive at the end He's of the He's still Acts. alive at the end of the book of Acts. So why are none of these things in the 60s and 70s mentioned by Luke? Well, it seemed to me that it, maybe it hadn't happened yet. If it hasn't happened yet, you can't mention it. So if we're going to date the book of Acts, say in the late 50s, early 60s, that would explain why it's missing all that data. Could we test that? So I started looking at the evidence, you know, in the scripture. You see that Paul quotes from the Gospel of Luke in his letter to Timothy. Well, that's written in the 60s. But he's quoting the Gospel of Luke as though it's Scripture already. Then he quotes the Gospel of Luke 10 years earlier to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians, where he's talking about, hey, I want you guys to celebrate the Lord's Supper the way I taught you. And he recites the way he taught them. When did he teach them that? Probably around 51, 52, when he was first in Corinth. And he recites a big chunk of the Gospel of Luke. So it's clear that Luke's Gospel is around pretty early for Paul to quote it. And that would explain why the book of Acts is missing all that data. He wrote Luke before Acts. And he's quoting Luke in the 50s. Do you see the problem? We're too close to the action. Now we're only 20 years after the crucifixion. And there's a, a line that you quoted right in the first chapter of Luke. Where Luke says, and by the way, cops are really bad about nitpicking words, right? So if I do an interview, I want that thing transcribed immediately because I'm going to go back through the transcription and look at all the different places that where you said something that I think is provocative. And one of the things I'm always looking at are the words that you had a choice about. You didn't have to use them, but you decided to use them anyway. So it's like adjectives and adverbs. Those are big to me. These are my glasses. These are my really cool brown plastic glasses. See the difference? I didn't have to say really cool brown plastic. I chose to say that. It tells you something about me, or at least what I think about these stupid glasses, right? So the optional words are important. And you saw in that verse that Lee put on the, on the screen that there was an optional word. He says, I'm writing for you, Theophilus, an orderly account. And the word orderly is a Greek word that means in the correct chronological order. In other words, I've got the sequence of events in the right order. Why did he say that? I mean, think about that. He didn't have to say that. He could just say, I'm writing for you an account of the life of Jesus. I would assume it's in the right order. But no, he made a point of saying it's in the right order. Well, it turns out there's another first century gospel out there that's not in the right order. Papias says that when Mark was scribing for Peter in Rome, writing his gospel, the gospel of Mark, Papias says that Mark was accurate, if not orderly. Because Peter's teaching in themes, and Mark's putting them back together in this gospel. But now Luke, doing the investigation, has got, and who do you think he quotes more than any other source, word for word? There's more words from the gospel of Mark in Luke's gospel than any other source. So now we've got Luke's account, which takes Mark's account, and it puts it in the right order. But that means that Mark's account has to be written prior to Luke's account, and that just inches me closer to the crucifixion. I just got to the point where I was like, you know what?
that issue about is it early enough, it was resolved for me. I, these are our, our early accounts, and, and we even have better, like you always talk about. Yeah, there's even earlier accounts outside the Gospels. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we have a creed or a report of the earliest church that says Jesus died for our sins, he was buried, uh, he, he rose on the third day, and he appeared, and he mentioned specific eyewitnesses to whom he appeared, including groups of eyewitnesses and individuals, and, and, and even says, there's 500 of them, if you don't believe me, basically, go ask them, they're still around. And, and, but this particular passage can be dated back to within months of the death of yeah. Jesus. So we've got, we've got a newsflash from ancient history, it goes right back to the beginning. So this is fresh information in terms of being, having proximity to the events that took place. And think about how powerful that is, what he just said. But there's 500 people you could still ask. Now, either that's a really gutsy play on mm -hmm. Paul's part, right? Because there really aren't 500 people. So I'm just going to toss this out. I don't think that anyone will ever fact check me. That's one way to look at it. Or some skeptics have tried to offer that that was not part of the original letter of Paul. That's a late insertion. But as they examine it, it's not a late insertion. They can't find any early manuscript. There's no other manuscript evidence for that. We're stuck with this guy either really being bold and writing a letter in the early 50s in which he says, if you don't believe me, talk to those people who all saw, by the way, those 500 saw Jesus rise on the same day. They're all from the same day. So that's pretty gutsy, I thought. That yeah. was pretty bold. So you get a glimpse, church, of some of the arguments. Does it sound fanciful or does it sound research and historical? These guys are not people who are misled and just simply hoping and wishing. These guys are researched and vetted and have done their homework to say that these claims are verifiable. And I'm going to close with this and we're going to pick this up next week. John in his gospel in John chapter 20 verse 31 wrote this. These things have been written down so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. We don't have these conversations at Solace Church just so that we can have intellectual conversations. They help affirm our faith so that in him we might understand all that he's offered to us. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes this morning? Hey, this is Pastor Matt Blair. Thank you so much for taking time to check out our podcast today at solacechurch.com. You know, we realize that it's possible as you listen to this message today that God may have spoken to your heart about something. So if you made any kind of spiritual decision, we would love to know about that. You can email us at info at solacechurch.com and let us know what happened in your life today. Once again, thank you so much for taking time to check out this podcast.